because you don't just change a church's nature by changing its name. We're more of a church in a school cafeteria than we ever were in a church building. We have big dreams, but here's the truth. They're going to take hard work and they're going to take sacrifice. There's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have never strayed away. I mean, if we say we're here for the lost sheep, they need to know it. I hope we will always be changing that we will always be growing, that we will never be stuck, we will never be stagnant. Sing the same praises together. Hope that you've come off of a week where you've been praising God all week through the ways that you've lived and the ways that you talk to people and the way that you treat your family and the way that you do business and homework and neighbors and life. Hope that's all been glorifying to God. This is special, though, because now we all lift the same words, the same music up to God. So this is what we want to do. We want to be able to open our hearts, open our voices, sing the truth to God. Sing to him things that we either believe are true or we want to believe that are true. Let's do that together. We'll see what God has for us this morning. Glad your blood is pumping, ready to go. Uh, if you, as you came in today, you received a little bit different handout than normal. It is our journey group catalog for the spring session of journey groups that are coming up and get some time during the day to look those through and see what's being offered. You will notice on the website in like three different places, we've put uh, all kinds of instruction as to what's going on with groups, how to sign up for groups, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later today in our service as well. If you're first time with us, we're glad you're here today. Uh, as you're out by the coffee, you see a banner and it says uh, Southfield, a lot like this. And at the bottom, it talks about the fact that we have a gift for our visitors. So if, if you're here for the first time, we'd love you to take one of those books. I think today we have a, a book by Max Licato about how to overcome fear. So make sure you grab one of those as our way of saying uh, thanks for being here today. I want to congratulate you. You have officially survived the blizzard of 2011. Woo! Kids got two days off school. Some adults even got a break. You can order the t-shirt. You are an official survivor. Isn't that great? And I got to admit to you that some of us have been snickering a bit. Those of us that have a condescending uh, attitude when it comes to uh, snow belts, people that grew up in snow belts. Many of you know I grew up in western New York. My town was impacted by two different lakes. It got hit by Lake Ontario from the north, Lake Erie from the south, and we would get blasted by snow all the time. Steve Dix uh, sent me an email this past week. We were kind of having some fun uh, mocking you guys with this thing that we affectionately at home called a dusting. But anyway, um, <laughs> we were having some fun, and he sent me a chart uh, of a little contest that goes on with towns in our area. It's called... Um, the golden snowball. And these numbers hopefully are big enough for you to see. His point was that Syracuse gets the most snow of any town in our area. Of course, his snow, his town. This season, they've already had 118 inches of snow. Their normal season is 121, so they can only get three more. 
Uh, Buffalo, you see that we have, we, we've got 64. We average, uh, 97. And in 77, our big blizzard, 170 inches of snow. Now, by comparison, got those numbers in your mind? Average snowfall in Chicago, 38 inches. All right? How about this one? Your big one, 1978, 79. You got 89.7 inches. I'll round you out to 90, just, just so that you can have that. And if you look at that, you realize that you don't even hit the Buffalo average, let alone the big time. So, you know, we, we, we like to have a little fun with you, you little snow wimps. Anyway, um, as much as I like to talk about, you know, wave the Buffalo banner and talk about how great we are when it comes to handling snow... Truth be told, Tuesday night, about 8 o'clock, I was very grateful that we canceled our annual meeting. I I took a little drive about that time just to see what it was like. And I have a feeling, uh, I think Eric was the one that tweeted it, we would have had a big sleepover at the Paps. It would have been an interesting night. Uh, So we've had to shift our meeting. We're, We're going for this Tuesday, same time, same place, all that stuff. But it created a little bit of a challenge. By, by postponing, I was going to use this morning to talk about some of the details, some of the things that we learned at that meeting. And instead of doing a review, today we're going to do a preview. We're going to spend some time talking about what's, what's coming up, which, yeah, when it comes down to it, may actually work out a little bit better in the long run. It's been a little over two years, a little over two years since we moved to Shanahan. And many of you have come on board since we relocated to this place. So I wanted to take a bit of time this morning just to tell our story, to walk through a little bit of where we've been, where we are, and what we're about. Now, I wanted you to hear this so that you will understand why we're so passionate about doing church the way that we do. There's a reason for it, and a lot of it comes from our history. I also want to lay out some of the challenges we face as we move ahead. I came to what was known as uh, Bethel Baptist Church, In July of 1995, I walked in on the heels of a holy war. Uh, That that is uh, affectionately a a church split, if you're not aware of what that is. Just one of many that our church had had since its birth in 1881. Most church wars center on one thing, on one word, change. If an organism is to be healthy and grow It needs to change. It has to change. The problem is we get comfortable with the way things are, even if they're not very good. It's like an old shoe. It can be faded. It can be cracked. It can even be to the point that when you step in a puddle, you go, because you feel the water seeping in. But it's broken in. It's comfortable. It's your shoe, and you like it. In 1995, we needed to change. Really? In 1955, we needed to change. It just took us 40 years to realize it and to get our act together. In 1995, we needed to change or we were going to die. And that's no exaggeration. That's the honest truth. And just about everybody knew it. We didn't all agree on what needed to change. And we all didn't agree on how much it needed to change. But we knew that our survival was at stake if we did not change. Part of the change involved worship style, the way we sing today, the things we do on a Sunday morning. If you're familiar with evangelical churches in the mid-90s, you know that we were going through an era that was uh, affectionately known by church leaders as the worship wars. 
If you were in a charismatic church, uh, you didn't know this was going on. You were already contemporary. If you were in a Catholic church, you didn't care. If you were somewhere else, you didn't. But, but if you were in an evangelical church, you were at war, choosing either traditional or contemporary or blended worship. Now, I raise this for a reason. To see the mid-90s in our church as a battle over style and especially worship style, is an oversimplification of what was really happening, at least what was happening at Bethel. We were being confronted by a much more fundamental choice. Would we exist to continue to take care of Ward and June Cleaver, the people who were already at our church, or would we exist to reach Homer and Marge Simpson? Who were we going to be going after? Who were we designing what we do Uh, in order to reach, in order to take care of. That wasn't really a worship issue. That was a gut check. The worship battle was a simple, really, of a great, a symptom of a greater issue. Ward and June were already in, and they loved things the way they were. Homer and June stayed home. Homer and Marge. Why did I put June? Uh, That's that other lady. Homer and Marge were staying home, and they saw very little in modern church that was relevant to real life. We were not battling over worship. We were being asked a simple question. Do we exist for us or do we exist for them? Do we exist to reach a lost world or are we just a holy huddle? What are we about? Now that one stung because truth be told, we didn't mind people visiting, but we truly did not see our church as existing for them. If an outsider chose to join us, that was great. But we weren't aggressively inviting them, not on the whole. And if they came, it was fine. But they needed to become one of us. I remember having a conversation with a visitor one day. She told me um, she made the mistake of raising her hand during part of our worship service. She was worshiping God, raising her hand. And a bunch of people turned and looked at her and locked eyes and stared her down until she took her hand down. She could come. She just had to become one of us and do church on our terms. We existed for us. The search committee uh, that, that brought me here, that called me here, gave us six initiatives that we were to take on if we were to change if change was going to be realized. It included everything from moving to more contemporary worship style to attracting and holding young families. But there was one, and I think it was the final one on the list, there was one that really summed up all of the rest. It said, we need to become more outreach-minded. This was written by a man who breathed outreach and who was saddened and sickened by the fact that his church did not share his values and didn't share the values of Christ for that matter. You say, wow, that's a bold statement. Uh, Well, you know what? Read the Bible. What does it say? You can't be more direct than the words that we read in Luke 15. It was the cornerstone passage of that season, a season I refer to as the trenches, 1995 to 2001, because we were at war. And the war wasn't over music and wasn't over cosmetics. It was a war for the soul of Christ's church. Look at these words from the book of Luke, the words of Jesus. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? 
Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for that one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep in the same way. Get this. This is what Jesus says. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have never strayed away. Do you know the context of that story? Do you know who he's telling that story to? If you go back to verse 1 of the chapter, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. I would love to know what a notorious sinner is as opposed to just a sinner. Other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. He was during this whole thing to religious people, to people who believed that God existed for them, not for the people on the outside, but for the people in the holy huddle. You know, it doesn't matter what era we're in. Our natural tendency is to focus on the sheepfold and not on the field, to worry about the 99 and not look out for the one. People would ask me things like, Pastor, I know one lost sheep is important, but what about the 99? Don't the 99 matter? Clearly, clearly the passage, clearly the words of Jesus were not resonating with them. I want to tell you one story from that era that paints just how intense the battle was. One morning I was standing in the church foyer of our old building. I was standing right in front of the office and a woman came up to me that had gone to the church for a long, long time. She came up and she took her two aged hands and she placed them on either of the face, cheeks on my face and placed them there firmly. And then she took my head like a chiropractor and gave it a twist. She gave my head a twist toward the steps that went down to the landing. And as she did that, she said, look at that. Do you see that? I got to admit, I was a little stunned. I'm not used to people grabbing my face and turning my head and barking at me. I said, see what? She said, that right there. Do you see them? And as I looked down, uh, as I looked down, I saw a woman and her kids. To be honest, they weren't the nicest of people. By, by, By blue-collar standards, they were kind of scummy. They were dirty. They didn't smell good. They weren't dressed right. And they were smiling away. And she said, that's your fault. That's what you're doing to our church. She removed her hands and walked away. It was not a nice era. It was not a nice era. When we decided to change the name of our church, people protested with buttons and wore them to church. They rallied their friends. Lines were drawn. I even received a letter at one point in my house that said, expletive you and rock run too. And you can imagine the rhyming word. It has all the letters of fire truck in it, in case you're curious. On January 21st, 2001, we turned a page and started a new era. 
That was the day we voted. It was our annual business meeting. We had a record crowd, and that evening, our congregation voted by a large majority to change our name. And the fate was sealed. We declared that night that we were not here for us, we were here for them. And I have to add this. A lot of people, a lot of people aren't here from that era. But the handful that are, the Swanks and the Hansons in particular, are owed a huge debt of gratitude. In that season, we endured many hard conversations. We had friends that we thought were friends for life turn and walk away. It was an ugly time. These people paid a huge price. Bob and Carol and others paid the price. And I think that they would all agree without question that what we see today, this was absolutely worth it. What we went through in that era was absolutely worth it. Led us to season two. We went from the trenches to transition. Season two was a lot more fun. Quite a few people who are here today either came to the church during season two or grew into leadership during that season. Years of faithfulness seemed to be paying off. We prayed a prayer from Psalm 90. It said, give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. Let us, your servants, see the works of your hand and let your children see your glory. And may the Lord our God show his approval and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. Our children's ministry exploded. Day camp was humming along. New people were coming every week. And we were getting very tight in a building that was built to accommodate 250 people comfortably. We moved to three services. At the height of that season, we were averaging 450 people. I call season two transition because you don't just change a church's nature by changing its name. And you don't just change 120 years of a way of doing business overnight. In the transition season, we saw many people come to Christ. Many people start to grow like they had never grown in their lives. And it was during that time that we did something that a lot of churches did. We did a a church-wide campaign called 40 Days of Purpose based on uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. Have you read the book? If you've read the book, I wonder, do you remember what the first line is in the book? The very first line. Here it is. It's not about you. It's not about you. We took that line, modified it, and put it on the front wall of our worship center. It's not about me. It's not about me. I'll come back to that in a bit. We were growing and we had momentum. We wanted to keep growing and we knew that it wasn't going to happen in that little building on Bethel Drive. So around the mid-2000s, we began working on relocating. We believed God was calling us to be a church with regional appeal. We looked at a map of the area. We saw I-80 and I-55 and we said, there's the center of our universe. And we wanted to be as close to that intersection as possible without getting hit. And so there we were, and we were looking around, and we said, we on top of that want to be within a mile of one of those major thoroughfares and and on a highway, like Route 6. Now, here's the thing. You get off 55, and you start to go west on 6. That's right. You start to go that direction. Before you do, click your trip odometer, trip thing, and, and as you're driving along, come to exactly mile one and turn and look left and you'll see our property there it is 14 acres paid in full 
and waiting for us one day to use for kingdom purposes. We did a capital campaign. Money was raised and some of the proceeds from the sale of the building were used and we bought the farm, literally. It's paid off. It's ours. Things were moving along. Momentum was high and we were really excited. I need to say something at this point. I was asked in a conversation recently what my spiritual gift is. Uh, This word isn't in the Bible. I didn't know how to say it. I just said, um, I smell things. That's my spiritual gift. I smell things long before anyone else smells them. That's my gift. I can tell you, I'm not like, you know, a swami or something, but I can give you an idea of where something is going. I can smell it in advance. Well, late in that transition season, a couple things didn't smell right to me. It just, they weren't adding up. One, we were starting to see some minor declines. Not huge, but we had grown as big as we could with one full-time pastor and in a matchbox. The second was related to that line, it's not about me. I was having an inordinate amount of conversations and passing comments with people saying, with concern, that I'm, that they wondered what I meant by that. Well, in 2007, fall of 2007, we hired some outside eyes. A consultant came in and gave us some input. They used three words to describe our next steps, all S words. They are former pastors, apparently. Staff, space, and systems. Those were the things we needed to worry about. I'm not going to bore you with the details of that assessment, but here are the two things they said. You need to move out of this building yesterday. You need to get out of here, and you need to hire staff today, now. They affirmed what we already knew. So we did some hiring, and we made a determination to hunt down a new home whether our old building was sold or not. A target was set. A new home by September 2008. As close to our property as possible. That's what we were going to do. We believe God was calling us to do that. It was at our annual business meeting in 2008 that the thing, the other thing I had been sniffing started to come to the surface. And over the next several months, I faced more face to, I had more face to face meetings than I can dare count with people saying in haunting unison, we're not on board with this. It's not about me thing. From January to August, a number of people walked away. Again, close friends. People we thought we'd do life with for the rest of our days. People who led building campaigns. People who stood on platforms and talked about the importance of moving. People who worked with the assessment and stood by us. And now they were walking away. (laughs) I remember one's conversation so distinctly. Uh, the, uh, The irony is that the anniversary of it is in just a couple of days from today person sat across from the table from me, looked me in the eyes and said, we never believed in any of this. And then they said this, we loved the church we came to. We loved the church we came to. The church they came to in 1995, the church of the cleavers, the church that liked closed doors. It was a tough season. Those months were grueling. They were gut-wrenching. I thought we had transitioned What I did not realize is that when people come to a church, they come for one of two reasons. They come for what they see or they come for what they hear. A lot of the people that came during that era came for what they saw. They saw the Cleaver's Church and they liked it. But then there were people who came for what they heard. 
they heard Luke 15. I put Jason and Dana Aubrey in this category. They happened to come on the day that we were talking about moving and coming down to Shanahan. And we talked about the importance of moving there because of the green fields that needed to be reached, people who needed to be reached for Christ. And Jason came up and said, I am all on board with that. I am tired of being a part of a church that only wants to take care of the sheep that are already in the fold. It's time to go hunting for lost sheep. Let's go. Let's go. September 2008 could not have come fast enough for me, I promise you. In that summer, we knew we did not have the resources to purchase the mobile equipment we needed. So we approached a group, a group of people who gave us an interest-free loan for $150,000 to buy the trailers and the equipment until our building sold and we had the cash flow to be able to pay for it. Our first Sunday in Shanahan took place in September of 2008, a little over two years ago. By December, our building was sold and the option of going back to Egypt was gone. It was over. We were out here, we were in the wilderness, and we were going to stay. And so we're into this season, the season I call transforming. Not transformation and not transformed. Transforming. I hope we will always be changing that we will always be growing, that we will never be stuck, we will never be stagnant. It's a season when we've been able to live out Luke 15 like we didn't for 130 years. It's been amazing, and it's been fun. It's been a blast, and like every season of a church, it's always also had its challenges. I was sent a mug this past week. It's a demotivator. I love demotivators. There's spoofs on the motivational posters that you see out there. This one's called Challenges. It says, I expected times like this, but I never thought they'd be so bad, so long, and so frequent. Is that the way your challenges feel sometimes? I never thought they'd be so bad, so long, and so frequent. We had some challenges. We've had some challenges. I told you we moved out in September of 2008. Anybody remember what was happening on a national scale in the fall of 2008? There was this wonderful financial meltdown that began and, and, and feel like the bottom, in a sense, still has not melted out of it. We moved to this area because it was supposed to grow by gangbusters. That's why we referred to it as the green fields. The demographic chart had this dark, dark green area that by 2012 was supposed to be packed with people. And it motivated us to get here. All we had seen for years had been up and to the right. Growth, growth, building houses. No one was unemployed. We were living fat. Those times were good. And those times are gone, aren't they? The new normal is here. We've had people challenges. We'll always have people challenges. If you've got me, you're going to have people challenges. got any human, you're going to have people challenges. Whether it's a lack of commitment or personal conflict... That's part of why we're here, to help people grow. And you know what? That means broken people, and broken people have sharp edges. That's the way it works. We have a slogan that we like to use, pretty simple. Hurt people hurt people. People who are hurting hurt other people. Get used to it. We've had staff challenges. I could go on and on, but I need to say this. 
John Beaker and I were having a conversation this past week. We were swapping stories about our journey group experience that we just finished up and life-changing conversations and the baptisms of the summer, and we both agreed, while things may not be what we expected, we'd never trade it for what was. We would never trade it for what was. If this church never gets into a building, I can say this with conviction, we are more of a church in a school cafeteria than we ever were in a church building. We're more of a church in a school cafeteria than we ever were in a church building. I can say with conviction and passion that I'm proud to be your pastor, I'm proud of who you are, and I'm proud of who you're becoming, minus the Green Bay people. This is the church the way God meant it to be, and it's cool. This year, our church turns 130. Can you imagine that? 130. I like to think of us as the oldest church plant in America. We have big dreams. But here's the truth. They're going to take hard work, and they're going to take sacrifice. And I want to just give you two things to focus on. The first is this. If we're here for them, they need to know it. I mean, if we say we're here for the lost sheep, they need to know it. Truthfully, we don't rely on street signs to bring people to God, okay? God works through people to reach people. God works through your sweat and tears in the life of another person to reach them for himself. God uses prayer and personal touches to bring people to himself. Growth isn't just going to happen, folks. It's our turn now. It's our turn. Do you love this place? Do you love these people? Do you love what God is doing here? Well, we need to get serious about sharing it with others. It's not enough to say we're here for them. They need to know we're here for them. If we're here for them, they need to know it. Further, if we're here for them, we need to show it. And I could give you a long list of ways that we need to show it. Let me give you one. We've not talked a lot about finances since the move, and that's been very purposeful. We wanted to establish our new identity, and we knew that a lot of people were going through incredibly difficult seasons personally when it comes to their financial life. On Tuesday, we're going to share some numbers with you. Earlier, I mentioned that the group there was a group that gave us an interest-free loan. We went back to that group last year and asked them to double down on their investment. We asked the group who gave us the loan to forgive it so we could use that to hire Justin, a proven difference maker. And they forgave it. They forgave it in full. And that's a huge miracle. And we're now living on that grant to pay a salary. 50000 is gone. Year one is done. If nothing changes, if everything stays the way it is, 50000 will be gone by next January. And it won't be long before that grant is gone and we will have to make some very hard choices about where we're going. If we want to be an effective, life-changing church, we need to be able to sustain two full-time experienced staff members out of our own resources. We can't depend on outsiders to take care of us. Tuesday nights, we're going to be laying out the specifics of it and laying out a strategy for getting there. We have other needs too, dreams really, like a home base for a growing high school ministry. They can't put any more kids in Justin's living room. We need space for that. Interns we'd like to train. There's lots of good that needs to be done. 
Just recently, you taught me a huge lesson, one that I've been a little blind to. I was so impressed with the way you responded to the need for a house for Rachel in Africa. Through your generosity, you taught me that you could not respond until you knew there was a need. And when you knew there was a need, you were more than willing to respond generously. Next Tuesday, we'll detail the need. I love who we are. I hope you do too. I love who we're becoming, and I hope you do too. But I have one great fear for us. A return to huddle syndrome. A return to the history of 1995 and before. That gravitational pull towards self will always be there. It will always pull us. This goes for all of us. This, this goes for JG. I'm serious. Even high school. It's so easy to say, we love our group for us. And forget that our friends need Christ. We like the party we're having. What's the party the Bible talked about? In the same way, there is more joy. That's the Bible's way of saying, there's a party. There's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have never strayed away. I know you hear that and some of you are still struggling. You want to really struggle? Go to the last story of that chapter. The story of the prodigal son and the oldest brother who says, I was here all the time. I was faithful all the time. I was good all the time. Where's my cow? Where's my party? Our party's heaven. Our party's the new life we have. And there are people that don't have it yet. Let's stop spending it all on us and remember there are people who aren't in yet. I came across an interview this past week from uh, Billy Graham. An interview done by Christianity Today in January of 2001. He was asked this question. What are the most important issues facing evangelicals today? He said, the most important issue we face today is the same the church has faced in every century. Will we reach our world for Christ. In other words, will we give priority to Christ's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel? Or will we turn increasingly inward, caught up in our own internal affairs and controversies, or simply becoming more and more comfortable with the status quo? Will we become inner-directed or outer-directed? The central issue of our times, the central issues of our times are not economic or political or social. As important as these are, the central issues of our times are moral and spiritual in nature. And our calling is to declare Christ's forgiveness and hope and transforming power to a world that does not know him or follow him. He ends by saying, may we never forget this. Right on, Billy. Dead on. Let's pray. Lord God, we've had an interesting history that has brought us to here. We've had seasons that that were ugly and times that were hard. And we've had other times that we just wanted to cheer. In all of them, we know this, that our tendency towards self Our tendency toward focusing on us is always there. 
You came and died for the sins of the whole world. Not just for the people that are already enjoying the party. Always keep our eyes looking out. Always keep our arms wide open to embrace the person who doesn't look right and doesn't smell right, but needs God too. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have found, I have learned, I have no other option outside of the blood of Christ. That's a scary thought sometimes. But most of the time it gives me peace. I guess the scariest part is that Jesus could have stayed in heaven and said that it was all about him. Because it's all about him. And instead, I find that I have been welcomed as the friend of God. It's better for me that way. I think the, the words that Jesus never used, but the lesson that he taught with his whole life on earth is that it's not about me. And if we hope that the life of our church will also shout, it's not about me. I think our only hope is that our truth will be comprised of individuals that learn that it's not about me. And hopefully our individuals can make families that say it's not about us. And then we've got a shot that our church can tell a lot of people that God is still waiting to welcome. It's not about us. As we continue to sing, just want to give you a heads up. There's a theme over the next two songs is that it's about God and that He reigns. It's a lesson that I'm continuing to learn with my life, a lesson that I continue to realize I've fallen asleep on. As we sing out, our chance today, our unique opportunity, will be to bend our knee again and say it's not about me because everything I'm not, you are. Would you uh, join me in prayer? Lord God, I'm grateful that we get the chance today to come and share this time of, of worship together with you. I pray that more than anyone else, you would be the one that enjoys this time. That you would be the one that's glorified by the things we say and by the way we act. That you would be the one that looks at our hearts and says, that's what a worshiper looks like. And you would find great pleasure in your children. We pray this in your name. Amen. If we were having a conversation today, you and me, we were talking about Southfield, I want you to pay attention to the possessive pronouns that you would use. Would you say to me, I like your church? Or would you say, I like my church or I like our church? Pronouns say a lot. If you're still saying your church, I guess I want to ask you, what's keeping you from saying mine? What's keeping you from saying our? And if you're saying my church or our church, as in personal ownership, then are you acting like it? Are you acting like it's yours? Are you talking to others about it? Are you carrying your fair share of the serve? Are you supporting God's work as generously as possible? 
in this current season that you're going through. As you think about Christ's body and blood today, think about your relationship with Christ's body, the church. What's going well? What needs to change? God, I pray that we will never, ever, ever lose sight of the field. That we will never again go back to just tending the sheep in the fold. But God, that our eyes will always be scanning the horizon, always looking for that one more person, that one more person that needs to come into a relationship with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great morning and a great week.